right, what's up, folks? Happy Sunday to you. Good to see everybody. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. We've got a lot of text to get through today, covering uh, two chapters again this week as we did last week. And so we're going to get right to it. I'm going to pray. Uh, we're not going to read the scripture ahead of time. Uh, we're just going to unpack it as a, as I preach this morning. So uh, pray with me. Father, we're grateful for today. Thank you for the gathering of your church. Uh, Lord, we sang a song this morning that's... Uh, it's uh, at least my frame of mind, prayerfully. It's uh, everyone in here's frame of mind that as we come to, uh, to gather as your church and, and to uh, partake of your word today, we need you. Uh, we need you. Uh, we say that um, as we surrender our, our time and uh, more than that, we surrender our minds to what you would speak to us. We surrender our hearts to how you would challenge us. And uh, God, I pray that you uh, just cause us to, um, to see who you are, a deliverer, a savior. God, you secure our ransom by your blood spilt on the cross. You are our redeemer. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. All right, so we're about eight weeks into our study in Exodus. And uh, we've got about six weeks left. So we'll finish this series the second week of December, Lord willing, and then we'll have a couple weeks of, of a Christmas series, and then we'll be into a, a new year. Uh, if you were here with us last week, uh, Nick preached probably one of the most beautiful pictures of salvation that we see in the scripture. When you think of Exodus, that really is the theme that, that we're drawing out of it, that uh, this, this picture of salvation. Not only that, it's a picture of deliverance and of ransom uh, and of redemption. This, that's the theme that we have sort of fallen on as we are going through this book of Exodus. And the whole book really is meant to incline our hearts to Jesus, who we learn in the New Testament are all these things. He's our Savior. He's our ransom. He's our deliverer. He's our redeemer. And so just a little review particularly for those of you who might not have been with us. In chapter 11 and 12, we really see two profound realities. In chapter 11, we learn that death comes to us all, all of us, not just uh, the, 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 the Egyptians, but the Israelites as well. And we can apply that to ourselves in the, in the New Covenant days. Deserve God's wrath. We deserve his judgment, right, because of our sin and the rebellion that's in our hearts ever since the, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And yet what we see in, uh, in the text, in chapter 12 in particular, that God, instead of giving us judgment, he gives us good news. He extends his mercy to us. He allows the Israelites to take an innocent, unblemished uh, lamb and to sacrifice that lamb. And its blood is, is smeared over the doors of their houses and the death angel chooses to pass by those houses for which that blood is covering them. So God extends his mercy towards us through that shed blood of the lamb. And of course, this is a historical event. It's particular to Israel, but what it is doing is it is pointing to us the person and the work of Jesus, that Jesus himself, through his death on the cross and his, re his resurrection, by that we too, as we place our faith in Jesus, are, are saved and we are redeemed. And so today as we look at verse, uh, chapters 13 and 14, uh, which in many ways are the pinnacle of the Old Testament, uh, God takes Israel through the Red Sea, we'll see this deliverance continue. We'll see God continue to redeem his people. And more importantly, we see them not only be saved, we'll see them being set free. I want to point out three things from our text. There's a lot that we could talk about in these two chapters of the Bible. I'm going to point out three things that we see. And of course, these three things point to what Jesus does for us through his person and his work to secure our salvation and to truly set us free. The first thing is, is he sets us apart. He calls a people to himself that they might love him and worship him. He sets direction, and we'll see he does that by giving Israel his abiding presence. He gives them uh, uh, this manifestation of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide them and be with them. And thirdly, he actually sets them free. He sets his people free, and we're going to see that dramatic act happen in chapter 14. So let's get to it. Uh, first thing God does is he sets them apart, and he does this 
of course, by saving Israel by the, by the blood of the Lamb. Look at verse 1 of the, chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whoever is the first to open the womb, and among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. The ESV, as I am reading, uses the word consecrate. That's not a word that we would use in, uh, in everyday English vernacular, but, I mean, particularly what this word means is to, to render holy or to be removed from common use. So you have something that's common in your house and you use it every day. So to consecrate it would mean to take it from whatever you're using in its daily use and set it aside for only special occasions. Like some of y'all have dishes in your, in your, in your china cabinet, right? You only break those things out like once a year. I mean, like, those, those dishes are consecrated kind of, right? We got a lot of those dishes in my house. All right, so y'all weren't supposed to laugh at that. All right, it is funny, though. All right, and so in, in, in these ensuing verses, and in, in the verses that happen after, after this consecration, we're reading actually what that set-apart looks like. And what God tells Israel to do is to remember what God has done by observing a series of, of feasts and of festivals. It's a commemoration of what God has done. And we'll see uh, uh, later on, God's going to set Israel's calendar by setting up not just one or two of these, but several of them stretched out throughout their calendar year. And, and through all of these, they are commemorating what God has done, what God has done for them um, by his strong hands to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, look, uh, um, skip down to verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first that opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn among the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem, verse 14, and when it is time to come, your, uh, when, and when it's time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand of the Lord, uh, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And so this is God saying right after the Passover, from this point forward, you're mine. I've purchased you. I've ransomed you. Everything you are, everything you have belongs to me. And he tells Israel to set apart the firstborn child uh, of animals and of mankind. Why? Because that would, that's what would have been sacrificed in that tenth plague, if it weren't for the, the death angel passing over those houses that had the blood of the lamb smeared on them. But, but, but the blood and the sacrifice was in their place. And so Israel will be required in future generations to take their firstborn child and consecrate them unto God. God sacrificed unto death for them, and now they were to, to be set apart in their lives for him. And there's really two things that we should see in regards to, to being set apart and being set aside for God. Here's what God is commanding. He's commanding that their entire lives be set aside, not just set aside to use once a year, but set aside in their daily life for God himself. And this was really God's intention all along. Remember back in chapters three and four, um, well, actually throughout the, the whole uh the whole time that, that Moses and Aaron are going to, going to Pharaoh, they said these specific words. They said, God said, let my people go. But those weren't the, that wasn't the singular phrase that they would actually say. They would actually say, God says, let my people go that they might worship me. They might go out and worship me as a people. And so from the very beginning, God intended to free Israel from one kind of bondage and slavery so they would be free to do what? To, to worship him. And I think that's, that's how God defines true freedom. Freedom is not you doing whatever you want to do, wherever you want to do it, and however you want to do it. Freedom is the presence of God. That's what he's offering them here. Freedom isn't uh, just the absence of chains. Freedom isn't just the absence of a slave master. Freedom is uh, a righteous enslavement to a holy master. Paul would say in the New Testament, he calls this himself this. He says, I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ. I have made myself a, a doulos, a slave to the Lord. And that's why, the, uh, why God is commanding their immediate lives and the rest of their days to be spent for not just your glory, doing whatever you want to do, 
but for God's glory. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. 1 Corinthians 6, 20. For you were brought, bought at a price, Paul says. So glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter is saying this to a bunch of Gentiles and Jews who had been exiles throughout the, the known world at that time. And he is encouraging them, hey, God has made you special. More than that, he has called you to himself. This is the idea of consecration. It's not just Israel who was meant to be consecrated. You as a Christian, following, serving, obeying Jesus are consecrated. He set you aside as a holy person, not unto yourself, but unto him. God didn't save us so that we could go and do our own thing, doing whatever we want. Now, I should qualify. God doesn't make you a robot. He's not, he didn't wind you up and just like pull the, pull the string, and you're like roboting yourself all around like that. But God has saved us so that we would be his. That's not just in our physical lives. And this is the second aspect of being set apart. We see this in verse 3 and onward in chapter 13. God tells them not just to set apart their physical lives, but also to set apart their affections. And that's the rest that, I mean, really, that the rest of our days will be spent upon God for renewal and remembrance. I'm not going to read these verses, but you can look down in your, in your Bible, chapter 13, verses 3 through 10. What you're seeing there is God here is instituting a remembrance, a meal after the Passover. And it's not just a meal, but it's a week-long festival whereby Israel would observe this meal, and then every year they would come to have this time that they would celebrate the Lord, celebrate what he's done for them, particularly getting them out of Egypt. And he did this so that they would never forget the God who saves, the one who brought them out of bondage. And I think what we should see here is the beginning of a national calendar whereby um, God was causing Israel to, to base these feasts and festivals off of a, a remembrance of what he's done. And the reason God does this is because he wants their, their lives to be dominated by markers, markers for, for which they would continually be reminded of God's saving power, and so they would never forget. Why, why all these reminders so they wouldn't forget? Because we forget. It's why we do communion every week, because we need to be reminded of the things that God has done for us, dying on the cross in our place for our sin. And so this constant pattern that God would set up, not just in this festival and feast, but in ones that would come after significant things would happen in the, the live, lives of Israel, he would set up these, uh, these uh, opportunities for them to propel their affections away from their selfish selves and to simply remember the Lord. And he does that because we all have the propensity to drift in our affections away from God to lesser things. Can you see yourself kind of, I mean, needing reminders like this? Can you see, especially the way that we live now in our Western culture, that this would be helpful to some of us because our affections can, can actually drift? Um, I think if we're all honest, we live in a culture dominated by by the cultural trappings of the world that we live in. Of course, the church, the church actually has a calendar that, that goes the whole year long, but if we were to single out uh, the most dominant holy days, it would be Christmas and Easter. And I don't know if you've looked um, or, or if you're aware of this lately, but, but most of us, even us Christians, in our celebration of Christmas and Easter, sometimes we're more, I mean, we're more, I mean, we're more focused on gifts and decorations than we are the, the, the birth and the death of Jesus, aren't we? I mean, we can get trapped up into that. I, you know, I say that, uh, you know, knowing that, I mean, those are both my two favorite seasons. And I love gifts and, like, gifts and decorations. Uh, but here's one, one step deeper. I think if we would look into our own family rhythms, a lot of times, if, I mean, as we're surveying what we're actually doing, a lot of the things that we that dominate our own calendars uh, are just the events that we have surrounding. I mean, just the things that we do as families. A lot of the, a lot of kid events, sports activities, socials, school events, personal hobbies. I mean, like if I pulled out my calendar, that's that's all that's on it. I mean, it's just a bunch of stuff going on that really drives my life. And it's not that these things are actually bad things in and of themselves. I think here's here's my point. 
The culture alone should not define your calendar or mine. We, we shouldn't let the culture and what the culture is telling us what to do at a certain time uh, drive what we're supposed to do. I think like, Israel, like what, we'll see, uh, what we'll see with Israel in the Old, Old Testament, our affections can drift. And the more we allow our affections to drift, even to lesser important things, the more Jesus becomes the wallpaper in the background of our lives. And God wants Jesus and what he's done for us in its entirety to, to be at the forefront, that we would, that our lives would be dominated by markers that, that put him in front of all the other important things in our lives. And so here's my exhortation that, I mean, all of us, we just need to be a little bit more deliberate in how we remember and celebrate what the Lord has done. I mean, what do y'all think? Couldn't we all stand to be a little bit more intentional? I'm not saying you need to be religious about this, but I think like we plan for activities and events surrounding cultural holidays, what would happen if we plan for how we honor the Lord? We're approaching, I mean, Thanksgiving is just like a, a speed bump, isn't it? I mean, Christmas decorations are already up and in stores, and uh, I was getting some candy yesterday for the office, right? And uh, I was just looking for plain old dark chocolate just to have in the office, not that I was going to eat it. Um, and it's, I mean, I could not find any that wasn't already decked out in holiday that, you know, like packaging. Uh, and it just, it's just, it just shows you uh, um, what our culture is all about. And of course, some of these activities that we do are centered around the economy of, 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 of us trying to boost the economy. We just, we just had Halloween. Y'all know how much we spent in America on Halloween? Seven billion dollars. Of course, that fuels the economy. You have People like us spending money on costumes and candy, and it's, you got these small businesses that are, that are making a lot of money, uh, perhaps making 50% of the money, the income they'll bring in during that time. But, I mean, I think as Christians, I mean, don't escape that kind of stuff. We've got to be a part of the culture. My point, let's honor the Lord. Let's remember what he has done, his promises towards us, and the hope that he gives in the forefront of our lives. I think that's why Peter said in 1 Peter 3, but... In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Why did he tell the, these dispersed Christians that? Because all of our hearts can tend to drift. And I think that's what God is doing right off the bat here with Israel. He's setting apart their affections so that in the future days and years, they would have these markers for which he is calling them to pay attention, but also to remember what he has done. So, so God sets them apart. Here's the second thing he does in our text. He sets direction, and we'll see that he provides guidance for them through his abiding presence. Skip all the way down to verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God let the people around by the way of the wilderness Toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of, the, uh, of Egypt equipped for battle. Notice what God does. He takes Israel by the long route, okay? And, I mean, very simply, all that Israel actually had to do was go a little bit north up to the Gaza Strip, turn east, and they would have been in present-day Israel, which in this, in this day, 4,000 years ago, would have been, would have been Canaan, the, God, the place, the, the land, the territory that God had given them. But here's why God is doing that. Um, it, although that would have been a, a shorter route, an easier route, uh, I mean, they would have skipped all the hassle of going south, crossing the Red Sea, and all that stuff. God knew that once they entered the Gaza Strip, there would have been an army that they were not prepared for. Verse 18 tells us that, Israel, that God had told them to garb themselves, to, to prepare themselves for battle. They were dressed for battle, but they didn't have the mentality of a nation of people who could have gone to battle and, and succeeded. God knew that if they saw the Philistines, they would have gotten weak in their minds. They would have, they would have fainted. And here's what would have happened. They would have turned back around. And they would have actually wanted to go back into Egypt, even, even go back into slavery. And so God, in his omniscience, sees what Israel can't see. Like, like a loving father, what does he do? He routes them the long way. And of course, they're going to they're gonna gripe about that. 
I mean, have you ever experienced anything like that in your life? So it's something you're working on, something you, that you see God wants you to work on. You're making a little bit of progress towards it, but I mean, the progress is slow. And after a while, it's like, what is going on here? Why can't I just like snap my fingers three times and get this over with? I mean, come on, come on, God. Let's get with it. I'm agreeing with you. You tell me what to do. Let's, let's make it happen. I think every one of us wants to do things the short way, don't we? I mean, I, mean, I just want things short, quick, and, and easy. And I think we live in a culture that's like that. Our culture that we live in is, is instant and it's now. I've got some favorite appliances in my house. The Keurig, the Instapot, and the microwave. I, don't, I think I could probably get by on just those three things alone and live my life. I see somebody saying, amen. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't we want everything to be as easy as possible? But, but what is it that God knows that we don't know? I think what we're seeing here is in his omniscience, God sees things and knows things that we don't know and we can't. And he is being faithful here to redirect Israel. And I think God does that in our lives as well. And so here's my exhortation. Sometimes when you, when you find yourself, when it feels like you're going the long route and perhaps God is the one that's orienting you along the, uh, long, uh, the long route, uh, I mean, in that moment where you want to ask God, I mean, what in the world is going on? What are you doing to me? Why are you taking so long? I think we should just have a different perspective. We should remember that God is sovereign. He sees things that we can't see. And oh, by the way, God is good. He's in control. He's holy, which means he's only going to do things that are right. But more importantly, he loves you, which means he's going to do what's right for you. And that's why it's taking long. God is faithful to redirect Israel here. But notice how he does it. Skip down to verse 21. And the Lord went before them by, by a day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. So in God setting direction for Israel, he provides his, his presence, his abiding presence. And, and he does it by giving them a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide Israel. Here's how I think about this. I think practically first when I'm reading the Bible. I mean, don't you just love clouds and fire? I mean, we're just like, drawn to them, almost like a, like a mosquito or a gnat or something, right? Um, so I, uh, I flew to Ohio this week for some, some work stuff. I work with church planners. And, uh, you know, planes fly like 30,000 feet, and we're climbing, we're climbing, we're climbing. And at some point... We're like above the clouds, and I was in a window seat so I could look out, and I looked out, and I wasn't expecting this, but I mean, I was just like awed by the beauty of the clouds as I saw them from, uh, from up above, and uh, it made me just I'm being in awe of the creativity and the artistry of God that he would create the atmosphere such that it, was, it would produce stuff like this. I mean, it's just pretty cool. I mean, I mean, have you ever been driving and you look at them? It's like, oh, look at this cloud. It's the shape of a, a bear or a star or like something crazy. I mean, just God does that for us, I think, just to, to please us. But, you know, I mean, we're also attracted to fire too, right? I mean, fire can be dangerous. Fire is powerful, but it's the fall. I was outside last night cooking some burgers, and it was chilly enough that it brought, I'm just like, man, wouldn't it be nice to have a fire pit outside? A little bonfire, just blowing, just like burning stuff up. Turning the, turning the fireplace on. I mean, so aesthetically, it just makes sense that God would choose something like a cloud and fire to draw Israel's attention so that they would want to follow him uh, by that. But, but guess what? I mean, God is not necessarily trying to do anything aesthetically here with Israel. Why has he decided to manifest himself in a cloud and fire? He's doing it because of his presence. He has set his presence amongst the Israelites and his, his, like his manifest presence through that cloud and that fire. In chapter 14, uh, this cloud and fire will be called the angel of God. Scholars would say this is very likely the, like the angel of the Lord we saw in a couple chapters back, uh, uh, a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, like on, I mean, physical manifestation, guiding them and guarding them where they would where they would need to go. And so what's happening here is God has given them 
his presence. And so here's the importance of this pillar of fire and this pillar of cloud. They're foreshadows of how God abides with us and in us. God gives us the Holy Spirit. Uh, he, he gives us his presence to abide with us when we put our faith in and trust in Jesus, and he saves us and redeems us. And I think that's what's happening here. In fact, I know that's what's happening here. Israel has this manifestation of God right there with them. Here's what the, the, the New Testament says about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when he indwells us, he seals us, he comforts us, he convicts us, he guides us along with the counsel of of God's word. Jesus will say in the Gospels that it's actually better for us to have the Holy Spirit uh, dwelling with us than it actually is for his physical presence to be on the earth. Why? Because Jesus was fully human and he wasn't everywhere at the same time, even though he was God. And so he dies, resurrects, ascends into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit indwells us. And we have the very guidance, presence, manifestation of God in us to lead all of us individually. And that, I mean, that's what makes it um, more better. John 13 tells us is one of the primary purposes of the Holy Spirit is to direct us into all truth. The Holy Spirit is, is our counselor. And so if all of that is going on, what should we be doing in regards to our own cloud and pillar of fire that's dwelling in us? We should be yielding to him. We should be listening for his voice. We should be obeying as he gives us commands. And we should be following God as he guides us. So all that's being foreshadowed here. So here's what's going on. God saves his people in chapter 12 by the blood of the lamb. He sets them apart and directs them, sets spiritual direction for them in chapter 13. And here's the third thing that we'll see, and this is in chapter 14, where God sets his people free. He's going to set Israel free. Chapter 14. There's a lot in chapter 14. I wish we could take a lot of time and just unpack it slowly. I'm going to give you two observations. Here's the first. Israel is judicially free. So God has actually set these people free. They've walked out of Egypt. They don't have any chains on. They're doing their own thing, led by Moses. They got a cloud of cloud of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that's leading them where God would have them to go. And so as we look at chapter 14, the, the circumstance is they have already been set free from all the bondage of Pharaoh and Egypt that they had experienced for 430 years. They are free. But what we're going to find out in chapter 14 is that there's, there's still some bondage that remains. There's some bondage in their minds, but more importantly, there's bondage in their heart. And so even though this physical bondage of slavery is over, they've already been delivered. I mean, the ransom for their freedom has been paid for, but there's a power of former bondage that still remains. It's residual it's residual power and fear and control that's going to dominate Israel. And it's going to take some time for them to come out from under this. Skip, skip down to chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt and officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped by the sea at Pihaharoth and in front of Baal Zephon. All right, so here's what's going on. God has set Israel free. They're out of Egypt. They're already beginning to encamp by the Red Sea. And at some point, Pharaoh realizes the big mistake that he's made. He's just released, albeit God forced him to through those plagues, uh, particularly the last one where he, uh, he caused the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. And so he had let go his entire slave labor force. And so he snaps to it. And of course, he is enraged, as enraged as we've ever seen him in all 
uh, all of Egypt. And he rallies his army. He goes on a rampage to intercept them. And now Israel is threatened by their former enemy. Look at the fear they have in their hearts in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to, to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is, is, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would, be, it would have been better for us to have served the Egyptians than die out in the wilderness. I mean, what a change in circumstance, right? Well, one minute you're like waltzing out. I mean, they're probably partying and happy. They're absolutely free. They got, uh, they've, they've pillaged Egypt. They've got gold and silver and food and all this kinds of stuff. They're walking out, no change, doing what they want to do. This God is, is, is ushering in this great deliverance, like actually leaving um, Egypt. And I, we don't know how, many, how much time uh, passed by here. The, uh, the uh, Israelites are probably a million or two people. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people. So it would have taken some time to get out of Egypt. But I mean, scripture-wise, this is only three verses later, right? One minute we're partying, the next minute, like, total fear. But, I mean, can you see yourself in this position? I mean, can you put yourself in the place of an Israelite? Imagine yourself in, like, a real kind of slavery, something that has you bound. Say it's an abusive situation, and you've been freed from your abuser, but you know that that person is out there somewhere, and all of a sudden you are in the same location that that abuser is, and you see them as like, what am I going to do? It's like automatic panic, right? You go back into that fearful mode. That's what's happening here. And so it's, uh, in Israel's case, they got this raging army coming after them. And, and get this, all of these soldiers, they're probably parents. And each one of these houses, the, 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 the Bible would tell us, there's no house was spared that a firstborn was not killed in this 10th plague. And so they're angered, they're enraged, and they're coming after you, the, the people of Israel, intent to kill you. I, I mean, Israel would have been terrified, and so would we. And so here's the situation. Israel's been saved and set free by this physical enslavement. But what we're seeing here is they still need to be delivered from the power of that enslavement. Mostly a power. I mean, for them, it's physical. they got an army coming after them. But what we're going to see is it's also a, a, a mindful enslavement and a heart enslavement. And I think it's the same thing with us. Here's, here's this, here's, let me explain this in New Testament terms. Paul writes very elaborately in Romans 3 and 5. He tells us when we come to faith, the penalty of our sins has been completely paid for. It is dealt with. When Jesus dies on the cross, when he resurrects three days later, he liberates us. He sets you free from a destiny of eternal hell to a destiny of eternal life. The penalty of your sins are completely taken care of. But then here's what Paul does in, in later chapters. In Romans 6 through 8, he tells us that there's a power of, sin that, power of sin that still remains in us. And it's raging inside of you, inside of your flesh. There's still some thought processes that you have in your mind that, that are still enslaved to who the old you was. There's still things that have captured your heart that you have not let go of. In, in, in other words, the, the old slave master is gone. You got a new king, King Jesus, the God of all grace is reigning over you. Not that, not that king of sin, but the reality is the old master picks up the telephone every once in a while, doesn't he? In today's day, he sends text messages. He sends memes with videos of you in, in your worst situation. He reminds you through text messages and videos of the sins that you've committed, of the sins that, uh, that have been done to you. He runs this videotape of all the things that, that remind you of who you used to be. And so here's the deal. Even though you're legally set free, Satan has no hold over you. The penalty for your sins have been paid. You have been justified, made right with God. You are righteous in his sight. God calls you holy. God has set you on a path to sanctification. In your mind and in your heart, you're still bound. I mean, that's the case for many of us. 
So we need a deliverance, not from physical slavery to sin that we once knew, but we actually do need deliverance from the power of that slavery, the, the power that it has over us. And that really is where Israel finds himself in this moment. And that's the first observation. Here's a second observation in chapter 14. We haven't even read the text yet. We're going to get to it. When it comes to overcoming the power of sin in our life, it, it, it's God's work, not ours. And, and Nick preached this last week. Just like the Passover, what did Israel do to, to, to be free from slavery? They, they smeared blood, the blood of the lamb over their doors. They really didn't do anything else. There's nothing physical that they did. God did all the work. When it comes to overpowering sin in our life, it still has to be God's work. All right, let's little, read a little bit of the text. Skip down to, uh, to verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm to the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I mean, this is like refrigerator verse stuff. I mean, this is like verse two verses that, that we should all like write on an index card, put it in our wallet, wake up every morning. It's like, Lord, all right, remind me of what am I supposed to be doing today? You're supposed to be fearing not, standing firm, and seeing God save you in all the ways that you cannot. You should be waiting for God to work for you because your work is not good enough, right? He tells us to watch the Lord fight for us, and we only have to be quiet. He's saying, like, shut up, Jeff, because there's some stuff that you can't even do for yourself, and I'm ready to do it. These are great verses. So God is telling us in verse 13 and 14 how he's going to deliver Israel. And this is, I mean, this is the main point of, of all these texts, right? God's salvation and deliverance for his people doesn't come from their power. It comes from his power. Mm. Now, I mean, have you ever asked yourself, I mean, why does God keep doing this like this? Why is it that God chooses to make sure that when he saves us, restores us, delivers us, does anything like that for us, that it's always his work, not our work. Well, he tells us in a text. He tells us in verse 14 and 18. Look down at your, at your Bibles. He, he says it very clearly. He says, this is for his glory because we don't deserve the glory. It, it's for God's glory. That and, and one other phrase, that we would all know that he is the Lord. And I think we see that same thing applied to our own salvation. Here's what Paul says in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works. In other words, we can't even work to, to save ourselves so that no one may boast. That, that last phrase, so that no one may boast, Paul puts that there because we would. If we could do, I mean, if we could save ourselves, we would. Some of you all have young kids, they're just learning to tie their shoes. Remember how kids learned? I mean, uh, if they'll, they'll let you do it for a couple of months and maybe even a year. But at some point, you teach them and they kind of get it. And then the next phrase, let me do it. Right? Let me do it. It's in us to want to save ourselves. It's in us to want to do things for ourselves. And a lot of times that leaks over into our relationship with the Lord. It's like, Lord, let me do it. And here's what God is saying. All right, there's some things that you can participate in. There's some sanctifying things that you need to agree with me on. And there really are, you know, for some of you, you have some obstacles in your life for which you do need to, to abide by a few steps to, to overcome. But for the most part, you can't be saved and rescued and delivered unless I do it. Why? Because I got the power. You don't. Maybe your story is like mine. When I first became a Christian, I mean, I had no problem accepting the fact that God saved me and I had nothing to do with it. I mean, I was a mess. I was a cadet at West Point, and God brought me to West Point to, that he would find me and help me realize I wasn't as good as I thought I was. I wasn't as strong as I thought I was. I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. He brought me to my lowest point. I was like, all right, Lord, I agree. Let's do something. You know what I had a problem with? I didn't have a problem with God forgiving me for all the, you know, the mess of my life. I had a problem with God with my, my present struggles. It's like, Lord, all right, so you've forgiven me. I agree. 
What do I do with the stuff that I'm stuck on right now? What do I do with my present sin, my present struggle, my present addiction? Perhaps you're like that too. Perhaps today you've got some, you know, some, uh, some addiction, like some anxiety, some, some money issues, some lust, some pornography issues. Whatever the, the struggle of your life might be that you find yourself enslaved to, you know, it's easy to think this. God is, God's grace is sufficient to get me out of the grips of hell, but it's not quite sufficient to save me from my present sin and, sin and struggle. Sometimes we think like that. We feel like we have to perform for God. And here's what our text is telling us, verse 13 and 14 in particular. It's telling us there's, no, there's a power that we need for deliverance that's outside of ourselves. We don't have the power to bring about our own deliverance from the things that enslave us. You can go read all the self-help books you want. They'll all lead you back to the same reality. The, we need a power that's greater than us, that only God provides in and through the Holy Spirit. This is why Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3, it's by his divine power that he's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what this becomes, folks, is a new opportunity for us to transfer our trust and our confidence in ourselves, and just give it to the Lord because the Lord is trustworthy. to to do those things for us. And here in chapter 14, we're learning that God is a warrior. That's what it says in in, in verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. God's a warrior who fights for us. And, And in the case of Israel, he'll fight with them in ensuing chapters. He does it for his glory. He does it for our good. All right, so we're going to finish this chapter out. I'm going to read the rest of these verses because this this is the climax of the Exodus event. And I mean, This is just going to be a beautiful deliverance that we're going to see play out. And what I want to invite you to do as I'm reading through this is to be an Israelite and to picture, I mean, just the crazy miracle that God is going to do by not just protecting them, guarding them, but like opening this wide sea and allowing them to pass through it and then crushing uh, crushing the, uh, the Egyptian army. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. The people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they uh, shall, uh, shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, his horsemen, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 19. And the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from there before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses, verse 21, stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea uh, dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from, the, from, Israel before, uh, flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Verse 26, and the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and, over the, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Verse 30. Then the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the, God, so that, uh, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. 
I mean, that's, I mean, that's pretty climatic, right? What's being portrayed here is, is arguably, arguably uh, the greatest act of redemption that we'll see in all of the, the Old Testament. And, and really, this redemption uh, comes just shy of the, the great redemption that God does for us as, as his people. I mean, these acts of redemption and deliverance are so profound that not only God's people are going to remember them forever, but of course, all the nations for that, that eventually uh, Israel will encounter in the wilderness and those nations in Canaan uh, will fear them because they've heard about this God that opened the Red Sea and let them uh, pass through it, but also destroyed the, the Egyptian army. One of the things that, that comes out from this is really God almost gets a name change. From, from here on out, God will say of himself, I am the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God that brought you through the Red Sea. And we'll see that phrase as, uh, as prominently as the preface of the Ten Commandments, one of the greatest you know, uh, passages of Bible, uh, uh, text in the Bible, where God is giving Israel the rules uh, for the relationship that, that he has with them. He says, I am the God that brings you out of Egypt. And yet, as, as great as this event was, it would be 3,500 years later when Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus shortly after his resurrection, and he's going to meet up with two disciples. And those two disciples with Jesus are going to, I mean, the, the disciples are lamenting this, this great man, Jesus, that, that was alive and then died. And Jesus is going to open up the scriptures to them and tell them these words. So don't you know that everything Moses is writing about in scripture, he was writing about me. So in other words, I mean, uh, Jesus is telling these disciples, when you're reading the Exodus account, you're not, you're not just reading some historical event which happened a long time ago. You're actually studying a foreshadowing of deliverance and redemption that is still to come, one greater than Israel has ever seen. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, when you read the Exodus story, God is foreshadowing through Israel, passing through the Red Sea, the path that we all must take that leads us to Jesus the great salvation he gives us, but more importantly, the freedom that he brings us into. I think there's two implications of all that we've read this morning. Here's the first. Israel's deliverance isn't perfectly clean. I think we see that. It's, it's, it's really not as if God saves them by that, that tenth plague, the blood of the lamb, and then he defeats Egypt's army, and then Egypt goes waltzing right into the promised land. I mean, that's not really what happens. I mean, they're, they're going to spend some days in the wilderness, and we'll see this as we keep going in our series. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if it was that easy? That's not how it's going to play out for them. Actually, it's going to take them 40 years, uh, take God really, 40 years to clean up the mess of their lives. And I mean, they're going to go, they're going to go through the Red Sea. And that really is just the beginning of their deliverance. And as I've said here before, uh, God gets them through this, this particular phase. Um, and even as God got them out of Egypt, it's going to take another 40 years to get the Egypt out of them. And it's no different for us. Here's the second implication. Their story is our story. The story of, of Israel being rescued and ransomed and delivered and redeemed out of Egypt is our redemption story too. God has sent his son Jesus to rescue you. He shed his blood for you, whereby judgment and death was coming for you. God in his love and mercy, he's offered a substituted sacrifice. Jesus himself, who willingly shed his blood for you, that he might transfer your sin. And all that you owe God, that you simply trust in him, and he gives you new life. But here's the thing. If you're like me, I mean, this is how our, our salvation plays out. It's, it's, like this, uh, it's like this already not yet kind of, kind of affair. We've been freed from the legal penalty of our sin, but we're still in need to be freed from the present power of that sin. Some of us more than others. But here's the, here's the great hope that we have, is that one day we will actually be free from the, the very presence of sin. And we have this great hope that God is going to remove all of our sin, bring us into his rest, and we will live with him in, in this sinless 
uh, new promised land forever. And that day is coming. But until then, guess what we do? We do like Israel. We stand back, we shut our mouths, and we wait for God to save us and deliver us. More than that, we throw ourselves on the mercy of God because God is the one who's powerful enough to deliver us, and he's going to be faithful to, to continue to deliver his people. Here's, here's what I don't know about you. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't, know, I don't know what addictions you might be dealing with, what your sin struggles might, um, might be. But I do know that the God that we serve, uh, he's anxious to rescue you just like he does Israel. He's anxious to bring you to a point that um, you stop, you just get off the hamster wheel of trying to work out your own salvation in your own power. And he wants you to realize that he he has all the power that you need. Paul says some great things in regards to um, how we sometimes feel when we are under, under the, the pressure of the, the sin in our lives. He says that no condemnation, there's no now, uh, there's now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Those are at words because a lot of times we live uh, under the, the, the hiding of shame and fear and guilt and condemnation. What we're learning in our redemption groups uh, three weeks in is that you don't have to live under those things. God actually calls us to come out from that stuff and to shed a little light on the things that we are doing in life. And when Jesus saves you, uh, he takes all your condemnation on the cross. Here's another saying that Paul says that's adequate. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has seized you that isn't common to man, but when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Transit Church, let's throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful picture of redemption that we see uh, in this narrative of, of, of Exodus. God, thank you that you've provided a sacrificial lamb that um, who spilled his blood for us and offers us redemption. God, we thank you that you've declared us legally free from the, the bonds of our sin and of our shame. Lord, thank you that you give us the opportunity to confess our sins, the, those things that easily entangle us and, and the things that grab our affections and our hearts. God, we sang this song earlier, and it's still true 40 minutes later. We need you. We need hope. We need freedom. We need deliverance. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that the same God who sent Jesus, the Lamb of God, to take away our sins would uh, would extend his grace to sustain us and continue to deliver us, that we might find true freedom in you. And we pray that for, for the glory of your good name and the good of your people. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.